Welcome to Legacy Christian Church. We're so glad that you're joining us today, and we invite you to open your Bibles as Pastor Shane brings the word. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Ruth 3. And that's, um, you have a Bible. <laughs> I gave you a Bible last week. If you didn't get one, uh, they're in the back. But I want you to write in these Bibles. I want you to take these notes. Uh, that way you have them with you forever um, or until you give them to someone else who, who you think could benefit from the notes that you've taken. We are in the story of Ruth and we are continuing where we, we started off last week. We talked about how uh, Ruth is this metaphor for a story of God's relationship with his people. Ruth and Naomi uh, are this mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. Ruth is the daughter-in-law. And uh, Naomi moves out from Israel. She's from Bethlehem. She moves out from Israel during the time of the judges because there is a famine. And so they go seeking food elsewhere. They end up in the land of Moab, which is not a good place. It's this uh, inbred backwater country that the, the Israelites hated because of their uh, proclivity to uh, idolatry and sexual misconduct and all of this kind of stuff. And while they're there, her, uh, Naomi's sons marry these two women. One of them is Ruth. While they're out there, Naomi's husband and two sons die. And, and so Naomi is going back to Israel because the famine is over. And she tells her, her Moabite daughter-in-laws, hey, there's nothing for you in Israel. You guys go back, go back to your homes, go live your lives. Just let me go be an old widow in Israel alone. One of them takes her up on that offer and leaves. But Ruth says, no, I am going to stay with you. Wherever you go, I will go. And so Ruth and Naomi return to Israel. And this story is likely written during the post-exile period. It happens early in Israel's history, but it's being written at a later date when all of Israel had experienced exile. They had been kicked out of their homeland, the promised land, and they had gone out and they had had to live among the Gentiles for decades. And now they were slowly returning back to Israel, but they were finding that their home was occupied by others. And they were wrestling with these questions of how do we interact with Gentiles and how are we supposed to treat this and what's God's plan for what comes next? How does God redeem this story? And so these characters are, are meant to be uh, symbolic of what Israel was experiencing at the time. Israel felt like Naomi. They felt like, my life is over. My, the, the beautiful vision of my future that I thought was going to happen has been shattered and has gone out the window. And now I'm returning back home, bitter and broken and hopeless. The story of Ruth, the character of Ruth, it is meant to symbolize the Gentiles of the world, the non-Jewish people, and how God is going to interact with them. And so we covered the first two chapters in the last week, and they come back, and Ruth says, I'm going to go glean in a field. I'm going to go pick the scraps, leftovers of a field, because it was the beginning of harvest when they show up. And she just so happens to be picking the grain of this field, and the owner of the field, Boaz, says, hey, who, who are you? And she tells him who she is, and, and he is related to her husband, her, her late husband. And so in Israel, there was this concept of a kinsman redeemer. Basically, it said that if a, a man died, someone who was a close relative of his could step in and basically take his place. He could marry his wife. He could buy his field so that it stayed in the family, whatever property he owned. He would protect and provide for the family, and he would continue their lineage. It was basically the, the system 
for how people were meant to be taken care of. And so through this conversation, Boaz realizes that he is a redeemer to Ruth and Naomi. And so Ruth comes home and she tells Naomi everything that happened. And Naomi goes, this is amazing. This is our one hope that maybe this guy could redeem us. This is where we pick up the story in Ruth 3, 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. Naomi says, let's get you some rest. Aren't you tired of, of this life that we've been living? We aren't meant to live this way. Someone is supposed to be protecting us and providing for us and, and being in relationship with us and all of this. And you're taking care of me and yourself. And I appreciate it. But I would love if you didn't have to live this life. Let's get us redeemed. This guy Boaz is our best hope. We, we've elapsed a couple weeks in the story where we're coming up on the end of the harvest. And so now Boaz is going to take the harvest and he's going to winnow the barley. Basically, he's going to separate the uh, outer shell that you can throw away from the, the grain part that you want to keep. And so it's going to be this process where they're all going to get together. They're going to get rid of the chafe or the, the, uh, the trash that you throw away, and they're going to keep the good part of it. And then they're going to celebrate that the harvest is over and that they've done this season. And so Naomi tells Ruth, hey, wait till he's, wait till he's had his food, wait till he's had his wine, wait till he's had this great night, wait till he's in a good mood, and then go talk to him. As a kid, I was the master of this. I knew the exact right time to ask my parents anything. You got to butter them up. You got to get the setup. You don't just go in with the question, hey, can I spend the night at my friend? No. They've just come home from work. They've had a hard day. You go, you pour them a glass of wine. <laughs> my mom's downstairs. She can't. <laughs> but you got to butter them up. You got to wait till they're in the good mood. You compliment them. You be nice. You treat your siblings well. And then you say, oh, hey, by the way, this weekend. And of course, they usually saw through it. But by the third glass of wine, they didn't care. Uh, <laughs> And so Naomi tells, that's mostly a joke. Uh, and so Naomi tells Ruth, go do this. Wait till the end of the party. Wait till he's had a great night and he's in a great mood. And then make your move. Get all dressed up. Get out of your widow clothes. Get out of your field, you know, grain picking clothes. Go, go bathe yourself. Go anoint yourself. Go look your best and shoot your shot at the end of the night. And so this is what plays out. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. If you want to trip out on some verses, do a deep dive into what any of this means. I don't really know. Some people try to... Uh, so some Hebrew phrases, the meaning of them is lost to us because, you know, like uh, I really discovered how much figurative language we have in our language when I went to school and I made a bunch of uh, foreign exchange student friends. And I would just say things like offhand, like... Um, 
like offhand. And then they'd be like, what is offhand? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know how to explain this to you. Just, it's just, just whatever. And then I would want to move past it. And they're like, no, no, we're trying to learn your language. Break it down for us. What does this mean offhand? And I'm like, ah. <laughs> and you get stuck. And so uh, maybe this is one of those phrases, uncovering his feet. There's a lot of speculation about what that phrase specifically means or, you know, I don't know. But the gist of these verses is that Ruth presents herself at the end of the evening. She makes her move after he's in a good mood and he's ready for sleep. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. She says, redeem me. She says, marry me and redeem me. Take my late husband's place and buy our property and provide for me and my mother-in-law and take care of us. Be my redeemer. It's an incredibly bold move. She is a Moabite widow. He is a Hebrew Israelite landowner. He is at the top of the food chain and she is at the very bottom and she just said, marry me. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you, did, in that you have not gone after younger men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. This is an astonishing response. Your first point is this. The outsider is worth redeeming. He looks at this woman who the rest of society has overlooked and discarded, and he thinks that she's worth redeeming, that she is a worthy woman. God is telling his people that he looks at the outsiders, at the poor, at the widows, at the Gentiles, at the lowliest members of society, and he thinks that they are worth redeeming. And redemption in this context is not just a one-time act. It's not just him saying, yeah, you're a good person, so here, take some money and go buy, go buy your property back. In this context, redeeming means marrying. It means being in a lifelong relationship with. This is what God is saying about the outsiders, that he thinks they are worth being in a relationship with forever. This message is revolutionary. This message would have been like a punch in the gut to the original audience reading this going, wait, the Moabite woman is who he's talking about still? And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. He says, I'm going to do it. But our, our law dictates that there is one relative who has a first claim. I'm second in line. If that guy says yes, then our rules say he gets to marry you and buy your land and all of that. But if he says no, then I will do it for sure. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. Especially in this culture, if people saw her leaving this room, her life is over. Her reputation is ruined. She, they go, oh, I knew it. That Moabite woman and her Moabite ways. And, you know, she's doing it. It would have been instant gossip. It would have been instant slander. Her life would have been ruined. But instead, Boaz makes sure that she leaves with her dignity and her reputation intact. But it's not enough just to not do harm. He also has to bless her. He also says, and take a bunch of food with you. 
And so your second point is this. The Redeemer exchanges shame for blessing. He cares about her reputation. He protects her. He doesn't allow anyone to slander her or gossip about her. He doesn't let anyone speculate about what might have happened between them. And he goes out of his way to bless her and provide for her. This is reflective of God's character. He doesn't not only avoid shaming the outsider, but he protects and he blesses them. Imagine being an outsider who had grown up with this belief that, you know, God has his chosen people and I'm not one of them. And I can, and the story is telling you, if you come to him, he's not going to shame you. He's not going to embarrass you. He's going to provide for you and protect you and love you. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Ruth tells Naomi how the, the night went, and Naomi says, I want to know how this story ends. Ruth and Naomi want to be redeemed so badly. This is their only hope to have a future. And yet they wait and they go through the prescribed process. So your third point is this. Ruth was obedient to the process. So often we want redemption, but we want it on our terms. We want to dictate both the result and the process. We want to say how it happens, but that's not how it works. God offers us a plan of redemption. He makes it clear that by accepting his gospel and submitting to his lordship that we can be redeemed. But this is the only way. It's kind of mind-blowing when we put it into perspective that we want redemption and we want options for how to get there. God of the universe, forgive me for my treason against you and let me determine how I still get to live after this moment. It makes no sense. If Ruth would have gone up to Boaz and said, I want you to redeem me, but I'm not really interested in marrying you. So here's how this is going to work. We're going to do it this way. Boaz would have gone, what are you talking about? Get out of here. I'm doing you the service by, by, by redeeming you, and you're going to tell me how to do it? But so often we do this with God. We say, okay, redeem me but I want it to be because I'm a good person or because I, I mostly follow you, but I'm still going to hold on to this part of my old life. Or I, I, I'll believe in Jesus because you tell me that's how, but I'm also going to believe in this other stuff as well. And, you know, all roads lead to heaven anyway. And so I'm going to mix a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And it's not how it works. Redemption is possible, but only one way. And so this story builds to the final chapter that we're going to cover next week. We're going to find out how it all plays out. But the story is so much more than just a relationship between two people on the other side of the world that happened thousands of years ago. It's a metaphor for God's relationship with humanity. He is telling everyone that he values the outsider, that he's willing to do whatever it takes to redeem the outsider because he values them. And something that struck me this, this week while I was preparing this message is the setting is so intentional. When Ruth encounters Boaz in this chapter and we find out he's going to redeem her, he's winnowing the barley. And throughout scripture, harvest is used as a symbol of God's final judgment, right? Throughout the, the New Testament, there are these verses where it talks about uh, God reaping in the harvest and he's going to separate what's his and get rid of what's not. In Matthew 3, 11, John the Baptist is talking to the Pharisees and the Pharisees think they know how it's going to go. If you asked everybody at this time, who goes in which pile? The Pharisees go, well, us and the other good Israelites, we go in the barley pile and the rest of the world goes in the chafe pile and they get burned. 
they get thrown out because they're trash. John the Baptist goes, buddy, you don't, you don't get it. Jesus is coming and he's going to redefine what those two piles are. Matthew 3.11, John the Baptist says this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chafe with unquenchable fire. John goes, Jesus is coming, and relationship with him is going to dictate which pile you go in. The good one or the bad one. The one that gets to be stored up forever and, and with him, the one that gets tossed out. And this message is so powerful and so important because what he's communicating to all the outsiders, to the lowly, to the broken, to the Gentiles, to the, those who feel not good enough, those who have been constantly told, you're trash. He's saying, you are not the chafe. And as we revisit our mission this morning, as we revisit our, our, our vision to be outwardly focused, this is what we are carrying out into the city. This is the message of hope that we are meant to be a beacon of as we are a light to this city and this community. We are meant to communicate to the people around us that you are not the chafe. Despite all the people who have looked at you and who have seen you as an outsider or someone who wasn't good enough or, or someone they treated like was disposable, the Redeemer looks at you and says, you are worth redeeming. You are someone that I want to be in relationship with. God's plan is not just to save Israel. His plan is not just to save the insiders. His plan is not just to save the people who look like you or me. His plan is to save the world. In Acts chapter 10, Peter has this incredible vision where, where God shows him all of the animals and they all come down from heaven and God says, go eat. And Peter goes, no, I would never eat those because they're unclean and I follow the Jewish law. And God says, don't you ever call unclean what I have made clean. And he does this over and over and Peter wakes up and there's some Gentiles at his door saying, will you come preach us the gospel? And Peter goes, you know what? I wouldn't have. But gosh darn it, I just had a dream and I'm pretty sure that God's telling me that you are just as clean as I am and that I can't ever reject that idea again. And so your last point is this, God's plan is bigger than we imagine. Peter never could have imagined that Jesus had come to save the whole world. It was impressive enough that he was the Messiah and the King of Israel, but now Peter realizes that Jesus is the King of everything. When we neglect the outsiders, when we put up barriers between people and God, we lose perspective on who Jesus is. We shrink his kingdom. We shrink his throne. When we watch as our Redeemer saves the whole world, only then do we get an understanding of how awesome and powerful he really is. Only through including the outsider and realizing that Jesus' victory has no bounds can we truly worship and appreciate him. How dare we deny his power? How dare we deny his authority? How dare we deny his identity? We can't exclude the outsiders because the king of the universe has shown that they are worth saving. So this is the message that we are supposed to take out into the world. Imagine if the church was this. Imagine if when people came here, they experienced and believed this. If by interacting with you, 
by hearing these words, by watching us worship, they came to believe this about themselves, that they are not the chafe, they are the barley, that they are not the trash that gets thrown out. They are the one who gets redeemed and loved and brought into relationship. It would change everything. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of scripture. And this is the story of Ruth. So what do we do with this? Real quick, your first application point, value everyone. We can't overlook people. We don't get to say, well, that person matters and that person doesn't. Well, that person's a little more important because they tithe and when they tithe, we're able to you know, pay for the building and do this. We can't do that. Everyone matters. That includes you. Some of you are really good at, at doing that for everyone else and not yourself. Some of you are very good at seeing the value in all the other people in the room and going, but I don't belong here. You are not the chafe. You are the barley. God looks at you and says, you are worth redeeming and I want to be in relationship with you. Second point is, is this, trust the process. There is one way to redemption, just one, through submission to Jesus' lordship. Accept the redemption the way that it is offered. Don't try to go, well, I'll accept it, but can I do it this way? Well, I'll accept it, but if you have to say but, you're doing it wrong. Jesus lays out the process. He makes it very clear. Even if we go, ah, but I think it'd be better. Trust the process. Do it the way that he says. And your last point is this. Be part of the plan. Go be a light in the world. Value others the way that Jesus does. Be one of the people who, who Jesus sends out into the harvest to collect the barley. We have this amazing opportunity. And uh, you know, like I said, we're about to make these changes in the next couple of weeks. I want to see us really commit to this. Go be part of the plan. Go invite the people who have been overlooked by the church system. We've already done a great job of building a pretty unconventional church. We are not the, the people that you think of when you think of the you know, South Reno suburban church. That's great. And so go invite those people who have been overlooked, the unchurched, the de-churched, those who have walked away, those who have never wanted to be part of this, and show them man, this is a place where you are going to find that we love you and value you, where the God of the universe looks at you and goes, I want to be in relationship with you. And that his kingdom grows when we do that. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much. God, I thank you that your plan is bigger than I can ever imagine. Lord, that in the moments where I feel like mission accomplished, I'm saved and the people I care about are saved, so we're good. God, your, your vision and your plan and what you're working towards is so much greater. God, I'm sorry for the moments where I shrink your kingdom, where I shrink your throne, where I try to put you in a box. God, I pray that you would blow us away with the, the full realization of your kingdom, the full realization of the authority and the power and the identity that you wield, your status as king of everything. And God, when, when we understand who you are, this idea that you would look at us and say, yeah, I want to redeem you. Yes, I'm willing to pay the price to bring you into relationship with me. It's unfathomable, God. It's awe-inspiring and humbling and, and moving. And how can we not fall in love with you when you look at us and you say that? God, I pray that you would so fill our hearts with this message, that you would so fill our hearts with an understanding of the love and compassion and desire to be in relationship that you have for us. 
that it would spill over, Lord, and that it would affect every relationship that we have in our lives. God, that we wouldn't be able to help but see people who are hurting around us say, I have to introduce you to this God who loves you, to God who wants to be in relationship with you, who values you, who was willing to come and die and resurrect to redeem you. Lord, I pray that we would be a church where this mission gets advanced, where this vision gets advanced, where everyone who shows up feels this way, Lord. God, we thank you. And we thank you for choosing us and for using us, Lord. But mostly, God, we just thank you for who you are. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.